Hello and welcome to episode 275 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and we have a delightful DS doozy for you this week to talk about Radiant Historia, the 2010-2011 DS RPG from Atlas when their logo made a little bit more sense. Uh, So joining me for today's Radiant Historia discussion are Caleb Curry. Hello. Pete Levitt. Hello. And Alana Hayes. You've returned, listeners. <laughs> so, uh, folks, um, we're playing Radiant Historia this month in the podcast. It's uh, it, it didn't exactly come out of nowhere. It's been on our on our big ideas board for I think years. There was so there was interest among RPG fan staff to play or replay this game, and uh, I played it around when it came out, probably in in 2011 or 2012, and have fond memories of it, but. Uh, replaying it for this podcast, it's like I'm sort of surprised at what I'm remember remembering and surprised at what I what I've forgotten because like because <laughs> uh, this game has some wild plot twists and turns from the get go and uh, I'm I'm pretty invested. I I ended up finishing uh, the first three chapters. I'm right at the beginning of chapter four in both timelines, which we will explain and get into a little bit but uh let's talk about our background with radiant historia um individually personally uh i already went i guess so um alana what's um is this your first time playing radiant historia yeah it is and i think i've said this a few times on the show recently um radiant historia in its original ds release never came out in europe um atlas and this is something i've kind of repeated a few times as well atlas didn't really have much of a publishing branch out here um so if we got an atlas game it usually was persona or it was digitally or or just not at all in the case of radiant historia um yeah we didn't get it until perfect chronology which is the 2018 3ds re-release which has some extra content uh, a new timeline and some redrawn character art um but I do have the DS version, the original release. Um, I got it as a gift from an RPG fan staff member a few years ago. And because DS is a region free, that's great. Um, so, yeah, this is my first time playing it. And I'm really loving it. Really loving it so far. Excellent. And uh, any early impressions other than really loving it so far? Um, I mean, I knew the music was great, but let's talk about Yoko Shimabura and how great she is as a composer. Yeah, she is. <laughs> um, good. Yeah, this is so good. Like, to think that she worked on this and Xenoblade Chronicles at the same time. Uh, I oh, mean, really? her work on Xenoblade is definitely a little bit less. It's more of an Ace Plus uh, Kiyotaka thing. Um, but uh, yeah, this Radiant Historia is like one of my favorite soundtracks of hers and has been for a while. So the context has been very lovely to add to the music but yeah like everything I, yeah it, it just feels so far like it just feels really solid and i don't like using this comparison a ton but like there's something very old school about it something it feels like something i could have played 20 years ago say it doesn't feel out of place with the snes era in its kind of stylings the characters the story everything so yeah it's very familiar but it does some really interesting things and yeah, I'm excited to talk about them. Speaking of Yoko Shimomura again, I mean the, the soundtrack for this is great. And but I, it, you mentioning how it being close to Xenoblade made me wonder if this crossed over with Bowser's Inside Story, which is another one of her uh, great soundtracks. But I, but I think Bowser's Inside Story was over a year before uh, the release of Radiant Historia, so they, they probably didn't cross over. 
Yeah, it was 2009 or 8, I think, Bowser's Inside mm-hmm. Story. Xenoblade was 2010, mid-2010 in Japan, and... Radiant Historia, I think, was November or December 2010 in Japan, so... Yep, it was November 20, uh, 2010 in Japan and February 2011 in uh, in North America, so... Uh, and it, it didn't have a European release, so um, for three quarters of this podcast, this is roughly the 10-year anniversary of Radiant Historia. <laughs> um... So, but speaking of the other North Americans on this podcast, uh, Pete, um, I, I think you told me this was not your first time play, playing Radiant Historia, but on this revisitation, what are your early impressions? Well, yeah, I played it uh, about two years ago now, and I'm kind of like you. I'm surprised at what I remember and what I didn't remember. <laughs> but um, I, I, I'd like to speak on something that Alana said, which is true, that there's a lot of, uh, there's there's a, a familiar feeling with this one if um, as far as it feeling like maybe an older RPG potentially, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about it because what that does is it, and we'll talk about this later, just to kind of preface it. Um, it makes some of the subversions it does stand out a little bit. I think that a lot of the reverence that those older games had, uh, in their tropes and whatnot, particularly with the characters um, I find a lot of the characterizations pretty surprising, especially going through it again. And seeing potential archetypes in some of these characters and uh, seeing how much more human they are than they initially appear based on the the archetype you might assign to them at first. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it feels in many ways um, kind of old school, but also really fresh in, in some of those other ways. And going back to it even so soon has uh, been really delightful actually okay uh i'm not sure about character archetypes but this this game you know does have sort of big detailed sprite work and portraits that wouldn't be completely out of place in a i don't know let, let's say a like late era playstation game but it has um gameplay ideas and certain presentation elements, like like a nice big uh, plot flow chart for one, that um, that make it you know much more firmly uh, rooted in the in the two thousands than in the nineties, I think. But uh, but I mean, just having those like the, those big sprites moving around with footstep sounds is uh, is you know delightfully old school in its way. Um, Caleb, uh, first, is this your first time playing Radiant Historia, and what are your early impressions? So yes, it is my first time playing it, but I have owned it for almost a decade. (laughs) Uh, Like, so I've mentioned to every single person I've ever spoken with, but I really like Mega Man Battle Network. And this uh, has like a similar, you know, like visually similar uh, battle setup where you got like the three by three grid, the like five minutes of internet research I did when I first got it back, when it first released said like, oh, this is similar. So I went in, basically wanting more Mega Man Battle Network because I couldn't get enough of it. And it wasn't exactly like that. So I got grumpy and I'm like, I'm not playing this. And so now I finally have. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I love it. And I guess my like first impression just sort of bounce off of the, the, the classic things you guys have been alluding to. But it, for me, it feels like a classic, not really because of like the visuals or the gameplay, but because it's, you know, it's kind of like a flawed masterpiece to me. Like, I really love it. But then, like, those flaws are charming, kind of like an old game. So, I, we'll get into it more, but, you know, I, I'm really loving it. 
Right, and um, this is a bit of an interesting era for Atlas because uh, basically their incredibly strong run on the PS2 was over. This game came out about a year after uh, Shin Megami Tensei: Strange Journey on the DS, and a few months before uh, Catherine on PS on the PS3 and 360 came out. So this is after their really good PS2 run. Um, before they uh, exploded internationally, as as the, this game's lack of a European release uh, is illustrative of, and you know, I, I don't want to say it was an awkward period, but it, it wasn't. It's sort of the end of a particular golden age of Atlas that uh, that RPG fan holds in high esteem. I think for a while, like you could you could call our website SMT fan or Atlas fan in that in that uh, run of the late 2000s there was an incredible enthusiasm around the company on our uh, on, on our website even though all four of us joined RPG fan staff well after that time but so I, I don't know if we want to call it a lost classic or a hidden classic because it did have a 3DS release several years later but I, I think that it um, was always sort of a cult hit and uh, it was definitely present in our minds when we were like thinking up um, of uh, games to play for the podcast because it's shown up on our on our internal uh, uh, ideas board and polls before. So I'm, I'm glad to be finally replaying it. I, I, I now, now that I've listened to you tell your story, I think it's I think it's coming back to me a little stronger. I remembered I tried to emulate this game and play it on an R4 cartridge pretty soon after it came out because it got good reviews and it was an RPG and I and I uh, and I like well-reviewed RPGs but I think the <laughs> I think the DS version has a fail-safe where uh if if you if it doesn't like have check some one line of code or one uh bit that is in a cart you can't leave the starting city so I I I played the first 10 minutes of this game a couple times trying to leave Alistel on uh, playing on an R4 and couldn't and like well I already know I like this and it's getting good re- and it's getting good reviews I guess I better track down a copy and I and I don't I think it was slightly hard to find because I was playing it uh, several months after it came out but I did eventually track down a copy and play it through and now I'm playing I'm replaying it on that same DS copy I, I remember um, some GBA and DS games did have that kind of failsafe on it. I me- failsafe on it. I remember that the um, uh, I didn't try to par- I pirate this one, but the uh, DS version of Dragon Quest V, you can't leave the ship at the beginning if you uh, if you are playing a pirated version. So uh, this was you know just a, uh, a a slightly old school DRM from ten years ago that uh, is all rushing back to me now. But let's talk about the game itself. Um, Caleb, you mentioned that this is a little bit like Mega Man Battle Network. Not Metal Man Battle Network, but I'd play that also. Uh, but I haven't played any MMBN games. In that, in those, um, is it only the enemies that are on a grid, or is Mega Man also on the grid interacting with them? So, in practice, it's absolutely nothing like that game. But visually... Um... You know, Mega Man is is set up on a three by three grid, and he moves around. It's kind of like a like a real time action card based RPG. So mm-hmm. it's like really cool, but uh, this is nothing like that. Even though it's equally interesting battle system. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to only choosing which boss I'm going to face next on a three by three grid in a Mega Man game. Um, <laughs> but uh, rating the story is interesting in that it's it, it. I mean, a lot of strategy RPGs take place on grids of squares or hexes that uh you know fans of matsuno games or disgaea or fire emblem will definitely know but uh, radiant historia only really 
uh, only really the enemies exist on a grid, while your uh, while your player characters are on the right side of the screen in you know just like a kabuki theater battle like 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 final fantasies one through six um so you're like the part of player movement and positioning and defense uh, interacting with a with a grid is absent in radiant historia but you manipulate the grid and enemy position on the grid a lot playing radiant historia and uh and that was um they, they they teach it to you pretty pretty quickly. I think in the first or second battle, they they are encouraging you to shove enemies into each other and getting combos and and uh, different hits. And by the end of the game, you can um, you can like uh, manipulate enemy turns like you're playing a Grandia game, or have your turn turn into another character's turn and build up meter that lets you manipulate the uh, like that lets you like eliminate enemy turns. It's 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 pretty wild the twists that they give on grid-based combat and turn-based JRPG combat. So before we get into the story at all, let's talk about how, how the game fights. Like, uh, what, what was everyone's impressions about the combat? Oh, the combat is so awesome. It's, it's like, the, the story and characters are great in this game. I, I think that you come here for the combat and stay for the story. Um, they, it's, it's what first kind of drew me in. Um, there's, a, there's another uh, cool bit in that uh, of risk and reward where I think from the beginning, if not really early on, you can um, basically sacrifice your turns uh, to switch with an enemy, and that lowers your defense. So you can, like, you have your timeline on the left side, and you can eliminate, you can take out your turn, replace it with an enemy, so an enemy will go instead, and your defense, that character's defense will be a little bit lowered. And, um, you can do that and take that risk and uh, potentially group your party all together on the timeline like over and over and just rack up enormous combos. And it all is based on pushing enemies around and setting traps on the grid and pushing them into the traps and all kinds of just awesome stuff. Yeah, yeah. once Ott joins your party, every single fight <laughs> becomes a place the trap and move enemies into the trap. How do you beat this game without Ott? She's incredible. She's so good. (laughs) She's the best healer, or or tied for the best healer. Her trap offense is insane, and she's the fastest character by like by like a factor of forty percent or something. She gets like twice as many turns as poor Rosh. They do a really smart thing where because it's not my instinct to use something like traps uh, in a game like this. It's like it's much more obvious to to do much more direct moves. But the smart thing they did was very simple. They just made the traps really powerful. I think the trap damage uh, costs only, I think, 5 SP or MP, while a a normal base level spell costs maybe 4. But it deals about as much damage as a like a, a two and a half level spell. Like I think like slightly less damage than Rainy than Rainy's most powerful elemental magic. So and and Ott joins in chapter one and a half or two or something. So it's an incredibly powerful offense that completely changes how combat works. Uh, listeners, if you didn't gather it yet, um, the, the game takes place in a three by three grid, and there are spells where you you know you know just uh, where you cast it, and then the enemy is is instantly affected by it. But Ots turn one square in the grid into a trap, and then you can use the push pull shove uh, mechanics of other characters to place enemies onto the traps and deal incredible damage and it is so satisfying every time it's i, I think I, I think like the most fun for, way for me to play this game is to have the party be stock ot and then one character that can push or pull like uh like marco or gafka or roche 
Rosh? Rosh? Uh, are, 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 we, are we decided on that one? I think it's Rosh, isn't it? Rosh? Surely. Okay. Yeah, is I say Rosh. Is the, uh, is the 3DS version voiced? It, I believe it is, mm. so maybe we'll go and maybe we'll find out between recordings. Yep, maybe. But I'm, I, I think I really couldn't decide, so I probably will say both mul- both ways multiple times on the podcast. That's on me. <laughs> well, yeah, if, you're, if you're into fighting games, you can like air juggle too. You can juggle them like two or three times up in the air. <laughs> and oh yeah, slamming down and that, that does damage too. Yeah, yeah there's I, a few I, of us who are into fighting games, so you, yeah, I've done that you, a few times. You can say that. <laughs> like, like, like briefly turn the game into a round of Tekken when uh, when Gafka uses his uh, his big old uppercut. But Tekken yeah, all air canceling and guilty gear, yeah. <laughs> no good. Or if you're good at Virtua Fighter, you can probably do that as well. But I think Virtua Fighter <laughs> is the most incomprehensible of the three D of the three D <laughs> fighting games. I, I cannot do a single thing to look cool in a Virtua Fighter ga- game. But anyway. Um, yeah, so there's juggling and trap mechanics and movement mechanics, but only for when the, you're attacking the enemy and not when the enemy is attacking you. Making this a and and there's turn manipulation on a grid like a Grandia or but with your uh, but with player turn order represented very clearly, like a Final Fantasy X or a Persona Two. This game does a lot of very interesting twists on JRPG combat and mechanics, and they teach it to you like 20 minutes in. And I should mention this game. Uh, I, I I don't know how long a proper playthrough of the game is, maybe 30 hours, but in the first 45 minutes, you immediately have character deaths and time travel, and they explain <laughs> the combat mechanics and the travel mechanics for you in just an action-packed first hour. The game wastes no time at all, giving the player a lot of agency and explaining what kind of game it is, which is which was refreshing. Like I, I, I couldn't believe the, the pace of the first hour of the game. It doesn't really let up. Like throughout the whole game, you do get quieter moments, but the pacing is really a strong suit here. I think. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the game's pace is relentless at the beginning, and if you only go plot point to plot point, I think it keeps that relentlessness. But uh, we're, we've been dancing around it. This game is about time travel, and you can zoom back to different points of the game almost at your leisure after you reach a certain point. So the the game's pace isn't exactly thrown out the window, but the but the player completely dictates their own pace after a certain point. Um That's, it. That's right. Yeah. And and uh let's actually get into the story a little bit. At the very beginning, uh you are a secret agent named Stock. You're working for the Kingdom of Alistel and your boss is a shady guy named Heiss. And uh Alistel is at war with a neighboring country of Grenorg, and that war has been going on an indeterminate amount of time. And uh, so, uh, so working for Heiss, uh, he gives you a book in a very weirdly casual way at, at the very beginning of the game. And uh, when your first mission with uh, two new recruits, Marco and Rainey, uh, goes very badly, uh, you're, take, you're teleported to a mysterious other world where uh, two small children named Teo and Lipti tell you that you have the power of time travel and need to... Um, use use time travel to manipulate the events of the war and potentially end a uh, end a um, the destruction of the world because the world has been slowly turning into sand over the past few decades for reasons that are not clear immediately. So and isn't isn't this like a new cycle? I think the very very beginning is Teo and Lipti like witnessing yet another cycle of the world ending through desertification and, and them starting over. That's right. right yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it opens with like. They, um, Teo and Lipti have been potentially for decades or even hundreds of years been trying to manipulate uh, uh, time for the world to, you know, end in a, for the world not to end, but have failed. And Stock is 
either their last chance or their best new chance. And uh, and, and they're always hands off. Like they mm-hmm. always are. Like they never tell you where to go. They tell stock where to go or what to do. And they never really get involved directly. So it seems like there's like some kind of cosmic rule there that they have to follow. It, they give vague, it's like a non-interference. It, they give vague advice, but they cannot act themselves. And, uh, right. and but but they will tell Stock what he can and can't do with his powers. They're they're they're, they're very much sort of hands off in that way, like you said. Yes. Yeah, there's one side quest where they are a little bit more direct, um, but it's a little bit later on, around like chapter three, where you have to go and get the. Uh, you have to tell like one of the doctors or something to plant a seed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're very direct there. They literally like you pick one of the decisions, and then Tao and Lipti come up and they're like, "Oh, if you'd done it this way, maybe things had been different." And then if you go back, you get an additional option based on what they say, and you pick that, and then yeah, it, it, like, it's, it's about yeah. the it, that's the one where uh, I think you find that quest in chapter one, but then you can't resolve it until chapter three, where uh, a doctor is looking for a way to sustainably plant. Uh, are they core nuts or coconut like co-nuts? co-nuts. co-nuts. Yeah. co-nuts. Yes. Yeah. So so like coconuts without one co. So he's trying to find a way to plant co-nuts. When you find that information in a uh, in a farming town and give it back to him, he says, "Great, I'll use these to de- to build more mana to develop weapons." And the, the way to re- to resolve that side quest is to first refuse to give him the uh, the 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 information. Then Teo and Lipti say, "Hmm, that's remarkably forward thinking of you to do that." But maybe you should su- you should suggest that he plant them sustainably and to revive the desert instead of using them for weapons. And then if you replay, go back in time and replay the altercation with the botanist again, you have a third option that you didn't before. That, that that's the kind of plot resolution that happens in this game like you learn something in one timeline and then you use that to uh or or find something in the future and you use that to manipulate the past or manipulate the other half of the timeline and we haven't even mentioned it mentioned this yet this game has two timelines because um after your mission fails uh, near the beginning of the game um you have the choice do you want to stick with heist and the and the special intelligence division and s- keep working as a secret agent for him or do you want to join your best friend Roche Rosh Roche Rosh uh Rosh who uh was given a, a his own unit for the first time R- Rosh is a uh, uh I think he was badly injured in the in the past so now he basically fights in a like in like a mechanized frame with a robot arm R- yeah. pretty dope. I gotta ask about that. Like, what doctor was like, here, have this spiky metal gauntlet made out of scrap metal just to be your regular daily prosthetic? I'll tell you exactly which doctor. Yeah, that well, doctor. That's fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I know which doctor. Yeah, it's, it's, come it's, on. Yeah, it's, it's, the really gr- it's the really gross dude with who ha- like has not known a scruple his entire God, life. Yeah, God, yeah so yeah. it actually makes, makes a kind of sense. What's, what's his name? Like It's like Hessel or, or Honnell or something? Uh, Hessel, I think, yeah. yeah. I must admit, when he first appeared, I was like, oh my god. Like cause kinda, his entire body is like just like... Oh, he's like on wheels and he's like robotic and... Yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. yeah he, he he has like a he looks he's like a much less attractive version of Norg from Final Fantasy VIII, who's just like who has like a grotesque wow. yeah like, like a grotesque body in some kind of Iron Throne, where it's like that, that there's no way that this is a good guy in an in a JRPG. And speaking of which, like your boss Heiss from the very beginning is a weird twisted gnome of a man. It's like how is this guy supposed to be a good guy? No way he's a good I guy. Say, well, and like, I, I appreciate that the game is saying something there because Heiss is like the head of the spooks like he's the cia guy and like so he the game is basically saying like you know 
clandestine services, like special super secret stuff uh, involving large uh, superpowers. That's a bad, 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 bad thing. Yeah, it's pretty new to um, Alistair as well, isn't it? Like it, it yeah, it's like a new very thing. Recently. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. he came up with it all on his own. Like, no offense to anybody in the world, there's no way anyone with a nose like that is good. Like the minute yeah. he came on screen, I was like, I don't trust you at all. Especially when he gives you the White Chronicle, which is the name of the book that you can time travel with. I'm like, it's the way he says it. He's just like, oh, this is just a book. It, it might come well, in handy. Don't, don't worry, yeah. it's just, it's just yeah. <laughs> The only way I'm trusting a guy with with a face that twisted is if he's welcoming me to the velvet velvet room, and that's basically the only situation, the only oh, scenario. Yeah. yeah, I feel like if I was stuck, okay, and then my vulture man boss handed me a mystery book, and then all my friends died, and I met two creepy twins in some weird like Escher painting world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would yeah. not be as on board as Stock is. Yeah, he's yeah, Stock like, is just yeah. the consummate okay. professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah Stock. <laughs> True, he's he's professional. <laughs> Stock is incredibly easygoing in how he accepts his new powers. Like, oh, I can time travel now and then save people. Dope, let's do it. Uh, and he and he's sort of like cool and collected to a bizarre degree. Um, while <laughs> while while, while Rosh is a little bit more fiery and passionate than Stock is. He really is like stock for a main character i thought he was gonna i I wasn't really sure what to make of him at first but like he's cool and collected but he's one of these characters who like the minute any of his friends are in danger he's like wait no i can't lose anybody i'm assuming because he's been through something similar we know like rush has obviously been in that war that happened or the fight before the game so that's why he's got the gauntlet on but like stock has the same kind of thing like he doesn't want to lose anybody close to him so he doesn't want because he doesn't want rainy and marcos at the beginning he says i don't need partners i don't want partners and the minute he gets them he gets very attached to them very quickly and the minute he loses them in that first bit he's kind of beside himself so he he like he doesn't even think about using the white he like the first thing he does is like use the white chronicle he's like no no second chance so no second guesses i'm gonna go back and save them so yeah, I I I really like Stock a lot. I'm glad you brought. I'm you're bringing we're bringing this up now because um, both Stock and Rosh. This is kind of what I was talking about before. They appear to fill an archetype at first, and they end up quickly revealing themselves to be far more human. Like Rosh does is like a little more passionate, wears his feelings a little more on his sleeve. Um, but there are several interactions with his girlfriend and their relationship is like a bit on the rocks. Like we don't, I don't think we know the details all the way. But um, at some so- point... Sonia, Sonia has definitely known Rosh a long time, probably since childhood. But uh, as, but as they get deeper into the, what's going on in Alistel, uh, Rosh sort of gaining in the ranks as a soldier and Sonia becoming a more um, accomplished um, machinist or doctor or whatever her exact role is. Uh, all like, yeah, yeah, general scientist. Um, she is less and less okay with Rosh, uh, like risking his life more and more. Is, is the vibe uh, I got? Yeah, and and it's there's a cool thing there where at some point you have a chance to kind of help them out, and you encourage. You have a choice to like go after Sonya yourself or send Rosh to go talk to her, and the, the, you don't ever see their conversation. It just kind of warps ahead in time. And you can talk to Rosh, and he says, "Hey, thank you for that, but let's talk about business now." And it so y- there's a sweet side to both of these guys. And w- regarding like Rainy and Marco uh, and their relationship with Stock, like the archetype I thought Stock was going to fill was be the hyper competent, cool, collected, like cool and temperament guy. Uh, and 
he would just end up being frustrated with Rainy Marco, or maybe Rainy Marco would be incompetent or bumbling. But well, Marco, none of that Marco is, is Marco definitely is incompetent and bumbling. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he like he he kind of is, but to a large extent, that's that's not like really true of Stock. Stock, like Alana said, he he ends up caring about them a lot and shows um, a real you know a, a real uh, a kind of deepness to to his a real depth to his humanity um and his competence or the things he's seen and the things he's done and it's clear that he's experienced in like warfare and and things like that and obviously qualified for this espionage stuff um he he is very uh he has a lot of humanity and and is just uh, has a lot of care in his heart for for those around him one one thing definitely true right. of Stock is that uh, is that he's experienced loss, and I think that he really is this easygoing and 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 cool character. But when one of his friends is threatened, or or uh, he he feels like he might lose someone again, uh, he becomes more desperate and more and and uh, and more emotional. But but I, like like Stock and Rosh being these sort of two different kinds of guys who really trust each other and um and and help each other in ways that aren't always the most intuitive ways i, I think i think it's pretty powerful i i i, I genuinely i generally like everyone in this cast ex- except for maybe marco who could be you know we could throw him oh, in the trash well, no. marco is Marco's not that bad he's, yeah. he's that I'm bad a marco man. no I, mean, like, I, I can't take that marco slander get out of here yeah. marco Based on their interactions, I assumed Stock and Rosh would be a certain type of character, and they weren't that type of character. And I found them endearing because of their interactions, like you said, Solosi. So, yeah, it's more just like I'm, I'm expecting them to be set up in one way, and they're not. And I'm kind of charmed by that. I love them both. They're they, yeah. this cast is really great. Basically, is, yeah, I definitely yeah. see the archetype thing. I feel like you know, in like in anime and RPGs, like we see a certain character, like maybe their silhouette, and we like have this idea of what they're going to be like. And then this game did a really good job of sort of like tricking us into thinking they're going to be one way and then really developing uh, the characters, you know, in the way stock is more than the lone wolf, you know, he's, he's, he sticks, sticks alone because he doesn't want anyone to get hurt, stuff like that. Um, I think they do, you know, they, they manage that with every character in different ways. And I really appreciated that so far. Yeah, totally. And uh, looking at the rest of the cast, we mentioned Ott already. She's a uh, she's a satyros, which means she has a uh, uh, small horns. She's a, a little girl, probably oh I don't know, probably no older than thirteen, I would say. Uh, and she seems to really like Stock and it, and incredibly enthusiastically joins your party before I even realized it. Like like when you just meet her and um and her friends in the traveling troop, she suddenly joins your party and is immediately your best spellcaster. And I'm like like what just happened here? Um, <laughs> Right. Yeah, that, that was in the espionage route. The, the other route, I, I don't know if we really got to it yet, is um, like uh, Stock, Stock chooses to uh, um, join Rosh as his as his lieutenant or as his aide de camp, and uh, so so the standard history is Stock going on clandestine missions and traveling to Grenorg, the uh, the the other kingdom in the war, and uh, while the the uh, the alternate timeline um, is uh, Stock spending more time with Rosh and fighting more on the front line in, in chapters in chapter one, I think you, uh, you have that um, altercation at a mine and that's being fought over between the two sides uh, chapters two and three, you're uh, uh, fighting in this area called the sand fortress a lot, which is a, a bit of a, uh, like a, like a strategic uh, base that has changed hands multiple times over the course of the war. And then, uh, and, and, and you have to sort of deal with the fallout of the conflict in chapter uh, end of chapter three, beginning of chapter four. So like 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 uh, 
the standard history is more traveling in small groups, clandestine missions, and the and the alternate timeline is more uh, like seeing the war front with Rosh. And I, I don't know. There's a, a level of um, of politics here that reminds me of a Matsuno game. Uh, more than like a Final Fantasy game. You're not exactly a bunch of plucky misfits on a quest to save the world, uh, and and but it's also not exactly like large scale battles, political machinations. It's it 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 almost does each of those two stories in the two halves of the timeline. Because because the because really the, the world shaping world turning into sand. We need we need to save the world is more on the uh, on the espionage side than than the uh, than the than the warfare side. Yeah, like, going back a little bit, because, like, I think mm. one of the really interesting things is because there's two different timelines, there's two things that really stand out to me that... Because I was really worried things would get really confusing. Like, you're managing two timelines and you're going across multiple different areas. But I think Radiant Historia really works because the world is relatively small. You're only... In the first half of the game, you only go between, what, three or four different towns, maybe, at the most, and, like, two dungeons. Um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's two big towns and two small towns, and uh, two field areas, and I think two dungeons. It, it, like, the, the, the mines and the sewers, right? Right, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, and the Sand Fortress, I suppose, sort of. But oh, sure. But, yeah. like, varies between dungeon and whatever. Um, but, yeah, like, it's it's so compact that even though you're, like, retreading a lot of ground all the time, it's so it's so easy to keep track with things even if you're not like paying tons of attention to the timeline like the game does a really good job of dropping hints because like there are i know we're jumping around a little bit but like one of the things like going back to the mine the first time you go there if you go there as like your first option which i think is if you're working on the if you're if you join rosh's brigade you go to the mine and it's like oh you can either wait it out and ambush or you can go straight in on your own and if you pick one of them um, all of these points like at the end of nodes on the timeline you get like a choice between one and the other answer one answer will move the plot on the other answer will give you a bad ending which is just like flavor text but mm-hmm. you can warp straight back to that point oh i um, I, I love collecting bad endings it's, it's me too best. yeah <laughs> and then that's, yeah. And that's <laughs> not just a pathological need for me to fill every node on the flow chart that, that's part of it but, but part of it is I, I just do like seeing how things can go ba- badly, like like you're like uh like getting a wrong a, a bad end in a choose your own adventure book and then going back and picking the other thing. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's really cool. But like I think the game also does a really good job of like it's pretty obvious what the bad choice is most of the time. Like the text and the dialogue beforehand always gives you little hints as to what you should be doing. Like at the end or the middle of chapter three, you have to choose between Raoul, who is like the person above Rosh in the um in the Alistair army, um, and then you have to choose between Raoul and Rosh leading. And if you pick Raoul, you get the bad ending because the dialogue beforehand is saying like, oh, Rosh would be the ideal person. And everyone's like, yeah, but he's got his gauntlets broken. And it does such a good job of like dropping hints. And then some of the good endings or some of the right paths, you have to go and swap between the two timelines. Mm-hmm. But again, it always tells you what you need exactly. So, you know, again, with the gauntlet, it's like, oh, if you could get all the parts for me, that would be great. And then you get it in the other timeline, and it's like, oh, shoot, I'll go back and do that now, or you can know where to go. So, like, it's really manageable, and I think that's what a lot of RPGs struggle with, when they use time travel. Like, Chrono Trigger is the best one otherwise, but, like, time travel often gets, like, it, it's convoluted, and Radiant Historia distills it down to a single continent 
which a Chrono Trigger does as well, kind of, and gives you like set locations and tips everywhere. So it's structured so well and it's paced so well that yeah, I, I thought I was going to be confused and I wasn't. Yeah, I had the same worry going in, but super manageable and it's like it all makes sense. It's logical when a lot of time travel stories, especially in games, aren't. Yeah, and, I and, think so. I think. Uh, and most of it's documented. Like if you check that yeah, flowchart, yeah, it, it'll give you a, a little node for almost every important plot point and almost every side quest. Even though most of the of the sliding doors moments in this in the game are resolved by go into the future and bring something back, go into the past and bring something back, or go to the other timeline and bring something back. It's it's done in a way that I I I agree. Like it's helped by the by by creating a small dense game space. But uh, it, it remains manageable and sensible, mostly for the whole for the whole uh, playthrough. To go back to like the the good bad ending thing, I feel like I usually kind of hate that in in games <laughs> when like you feel like you have to make the correct choice, like they're like why have a choice at all? But this is like the one game where I feel like it works because from the beginning, you know that you're trying to weave delicately through all the choices in the game to get the one you know, find the one path to this, you know, saving the world. It's not a matter of like choosing your own adventure. It's, it's about, you know, choosing the path for everyone to live sort of thing. And it's like the one time in a game where I've actually appreciated where you had to make the right choice. Yeah. They, they met, uh, Teo and Lipti mentioned almost from the beginning that, uh, you're, you're not trying to find, uh, well, okay, you are trying to find the one best outcome, but by doing so, you can see all the bad outcomes and be and just very carefully shape it to be uh, to be what you want. I mean, we've apologized a couple times already for jumping around in this plot, but if there's one episode to do it on, it's the game where you literally jump around the plot <laughs> yeah. a whole Sorry. bunch. And uh, oh. also, I mean, we, let's not get too into quantum mechanics here, but the, the, uh, the two paths here basically exist in a quantum state where kind of this, both events are happening at the same time or, or, or it paral- in parallel times, and you're able to influence the, uh, the other timeline from one timeline. It, it doesn't always make sense. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I guess you have to explain it with quantum theory, but like uh, it, it, this is in chapter. This might even be in the prologue before chapter one. But if you rescue a merchant in from bandits in one path, uh, um, he'll make it to the to the mine to deliver his goods in time. In the other path, it, 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 they're separate timelines. But the but what's but the uh, but stock doing something in one timeline does affect the other. Uh, later, in, uh, when you have to confront Roche uh, about his broken arm. Um, like after you give him uh, a replacement arm and get like and uh, and get him to be more inspired and and passionate again in one timeline, when you re- when you replay the events where you get his arm in the other timeline, Roche confronts you and instead of being instead of fighting you, is more amenable to uh, to, to rebelling against Alistel. This is a uh, again we're jumping around a lot, but Alistel is sort of revealed to be a um, every bit as villainous as Brenorg, especially with a uh, uh, General Hugo sort of in charge of things. Uh, Alistel is basically a, a, uh, a, a religious um, uh, fundamentalist society w- ruled by the prophet Noah, but uh, 
and and Noah's an elderly man who has not been seen in public for many years, and and Hugo acts as Noah's mouthpiece and essentially runs the country by uh, by reporting on what Noah said, even though no one has actually nobody has actually seen Noah in a while, and um and it's obvious that eventually that Hugo and maybe also Heiss have uh, designs to rule over the whole continent, while Grenorg's queen uh, Queen Protea is a uh, is a complete despot who is um uh, who is living in luxury while the people suffer, and her two ministers are trying to sort of keep her in line while uh, while uh, while winning the war against against Alistel. But there's there's no good, there's no obvious good guy in this in this conflict except for maybe Stock. But again, it, the two the two timelines are parallel, but not really separate because because they're influencing each other, even when Stock is doing things much much less subtle than than handing seeds from one timeline to a botanist in the other. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like there are even times when like affecting the emotions of a character in one time changes their emotions in another timeline. Yeah, yeah, that just, was the main just, time yeah, where just I was like, like Rasha in those. <laughs> Yeah, just like that sequence with Rush in, at the end of Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. I actually love that sequence because that's the one where, you know, he he fights you and then you, you fix the timeline and then he's like, oh, yeah, maybe I will rebel. And then he specifically says something, or Stock specifically says something like, I'd never dream of fighting you. And I thought that was just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he, said, he said, oh, there's no, like, like Rush says something like, Something like, huh, I came here planning to fight you if necessary, but I guess we're of the same mind. And then Stock says, yeah, I, would, I, would, I could never dream of the two of us fighting. When you literally had fought him twice <laughs> in a row, back yeah, to back. Yeah, like two minutes earlier in gameplay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just come from the other timeline and don't just so that. Funny. It's great. And yeah. uh, you don't have to do everything in exactly the same order. I think uh, uh, like I-, I was a little bit better at keeping the timelines roughly along the same uh, level of completion playing it this time, but I remember the first time I played it, one timeline got like five nodes ahead of the other, uh, completely by accident. I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think I think I was like stuck in the sand fortress looking for bombs for a long time in the alternate timeline, and I got almost all the way to uh, uh, to, to chapter four in the standard timeline. I, I think this is this is you know um, th- th- these are just just handprints on my retired DS Lite from eight years ago. Uh, but but yeah, it, it's interesting how they make it clear from the beginning that you are going to do some time travel shenanigans, and they they give you a set of rules and then only sort of vaguely follow them, but in a way that it seems like that that uh, that the player feels in control and that the player uh, feels like that they're always discovering new thing. Yeah, it's, it's just really good at it. This game, this game, uh, uh, all of its story mechanics. From the the plot itself to how you jump between uh, uh, nodes of the of the timeline, I, I think is really fun. It's really clever, and it like another way the two timelines are split so clearly and like makes so much more sense to me is like there's like a key focal point. Not not only are you like part of different factions and split off for different reasons, but in alternate history, Li- uh, Teo and Lipit Lipti are very obvious in saying that Rosh is the key. But in standard history, it's the princess. Mm. Erica. Um, we, we haven't er- talked Erica. about her yet. Mm-hmm. We have not talked about Erica and her really cool haircut and her gun. I love Erica so much. She is oh, so she's cool. She has like so a princess cool. armor where she still wears her crown in public and fights with a gun, but is basically a magic user and like timeline manipulator. She's, she's I think, the first character that gets that character switching spell that I would use to give stock a bunch of extra turns to to push people into uh, into Ott's traps a lot. 
Uh, actually, just fighting you on the Marco thing. I mm. think he gets it first. <laughs> but he, but he's, but like you've ignored the incredibly important fact that he's Marco and is never on my team ever. <laughs> you are wrong. You're wrong. Hang on. Okay, like diversion slightly. Mm-hmm. Why does Marco have like cat ears? Is it ju- is it just his helmet? Because Marco is supposed to. I'm gonna go with okay. helmet. He, right, he, yeah, he does like, not know how to wear clothes that fit like an adult. Yeah, he's clearly supposed to look like a teddy bear, so I think that's, you know, that's a pro for him. I think, I think so it too. works. I think so I'm on too. D. Marco. Marco's fine. That, that explains why he's yes. so fragile and useless. Well? I think he's really useful. I mean, like... Yeah, he's, 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 um, he's uh, uh, until Raj gets some good moves, he's probably the second best uh, space manipulator yeah. other than Stock. Um and uh, and and he's a good healer, either tied with Ott or maybe even slightly better than Ott until Ott gets some good spells. Like he's he's useful. I just think he's annoying and never ever want to use him. Um, I, 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 I think I think the two worst characters in, mechanically, me- mechanically I think that Rainy's actually not very good, but I but I like her personality, so I uh, I keep her around a little bit more often. But uh, it, but but like with with Rainy, like she's more about direct damage. So that and I like the Ott playstyle more than the Rainy playstyle. Even though her, uh, Rainy's pretty strong, it's I, I I don't know. There's a lot of interesting playstyles in this game uh, based on all of the space and time manipulation because you're manipulating space in the three by three grid and manipulating time with turn order. That is just. I, I don't know. Like, there's. I, I don't think there's any bad character in this game, even though I do have no. a completely inexplicable dislike of Marco. <laughs> is it, is it because Marco looks like a child character? But I like Ott is the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Okay. I, yeah, I, I, I and I normally dislike child characters. This is well documented on the podcast. Yeah. Um. Uh. And I, I think that I don't know. Like like Falcom and Namco are both huge culprits here. Uh. But. Um, I, I, I like, I think I like Ott because of her mechanics and dislike Margot because of his personality. So I'm, I'm, I'm really not being consistent here, but. <laughs> You're well within your right to dislike Margot. It's fine. <laughs> Margot's <laughs> actually like, if you put him on the right team, he shines like stock Ott and Marco. Yeah. Mm. No, no. Like, I, I, my, my favorite team in the, my favorite team in the game is stock Ott and, and a, and a, and a second pusher. And that can be Marco, but I just never want to use Marco. <laughs> right. To pull it back to Erica and to standard history, um, mm-hmm. the reason you're going off to Erica, um, you've been given an assignment by Heist to assassinate the princess of Grenorg. And so you have to sneak in, do some espionage, and you go through the sewers. Sewer McCann. Yeah, and then Sewer you sneak level. in. <laughs> it's I just, not a bad I, one, actually. I just played a game for review last month that had like three sewer levels in it. I was, I was, I was incredulous. <laughs> Cloaca Maxima. Yeah, Cloaca Maxima is one of them, and uh, for the uninitiated, Cloaca is the name of a uh, uh, an orifice in birds, lizards, and some other animals where all of the waste exits. So yeah, Cloaca Maxima was a dungeon in East Nine. Continue. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, enough of that. Um. But yeah, well, yep. you go to the castle and you find out that you get ambushed essentially by some soldiers, and and then you find out that Erica is actually the leader of the resistance who is going up against her. It's her. It is her mother, isn't it? Because I know she talks no, about it's, mother it's, or stepmother. It's, it's, her, it's her stepmother. stepmother yeah. mm-hmm. That's right. It is stepmother. Yeah. Um. So and, she's uh, trying to. The, the the two ministers of Grenorg, uh, Dias and Selvan, who are sort of trying to win the war in spite of how incompetent Queen Protea is, they even mention um, we 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 had 
King Victor marry a commoner uh, to like to inspire oh, the people or get the people behind him more because Victor was not a popular king. Um, but Protea ended up being just as incompetent and dangerous as her ex-husband. She's pretty terrifying, isn't yeah. she? She has no care for anybody else in the world. And actually, like, Dias and um, Selvan as well are very... They're very cunning. Like, the first time you see them, they're talking to Queen Protea. I think this is, like, either the beginning... The end of Chapter 1 or the beginning of Chapter 2. And then they go off into their own room and they start, like, talking about what to do in, like, a really sinister way. So, again, like, this, like, lack of, like these muddled moralities between different characters it's like are they on our side are they on protea's side are they on whose side they're on their own side of course but like yeah um but yeah standard history is really cool because you join this kind of resistance because at this point you realize i think that well first of all stock's a bit wary of assassinating the princess anyway like the whole party like yeah it's our job but also this is a little bit extreme um but i think you find out later on that essentially you're being blackmailed or i might be getting the two timelines mixed up now um but yeah erica opens up a bunch of things basically because she like rosh is the key of standard history and there's a campfire scene where she's she she seems to recognize stock she pulls she looks at him Mm -hmm. for a while and he says like why are you looking at me like that and she's like you remind me yeah you remind me of my brother and i'm like all right, that's pretty normal. But like, there's things that she says, like she drops, like she knows about the desertification um, because of her family's history. Um, so Stock has to be even more wary around her because one thing Stock's agreed to do is not say anything about the White Chronicle or the time traveling mechanics to anyone. Right. Erica seems to be aware of it slightly, not to, towards him, but she's aware of something. Like she's like, it's got to be you who's part of the resistance, but also at as well in alternate history isn't no this is standard history she like drops some hints that she knows something she's got like a revival magic spell but also she gives you a white page and refers to it being part of a book doesn't she which gives you a skill yeah i I think she gives you the white page and the black page which gives which gives you the sort of limit break meter skills right yeah and at seems very aware of something and the rest of the troop that she travels with are like oh you know she's special don't worry about it like or they kind of like dance around something so there are a couple of characters who are aware of this ability to jump between timelines or time travel in some way but we don't know how that's playing out yet yeah yeah there's a lot of um they're they're withholding information from the player and and hinting at a uh hinting at greater powers here which which is to be expected because we're only talking about the first half of the game um but uh things like uh multiple people understanding that stock is special i still don't totally understand why heiss gave stock the the white chronicle because um because heiss uh, like seems to be your your sponsor and your ally at the beginning of the game and and stock really feels like he owes heiss because it, it seems like that uh i mean i mean I, I think stock was some kind of war orphan or some or or a similar situation and heiss didn't raise him necessarily, but Heist gave uh, gave him the position that he has right now in the in the Alistair military. But but like uh, Heist is clearly trying to cover up uh, um, some pretty vile plans that that General Hugo at and at, at General Hugo's office that he has a you know a, a brief fight with Stock uh, against Stock in in trying to obtain them. So it's like like, like Heist gives you the White Chronicle and puts you on the path to possibly fixing the world's timeline but 
like less than ten hours later is clearly antagonistic. It's I, I don't know what uh, um, what Heiss's motivations are at all yet, but uh, there's there's a lot of moral gray area going on um, uh, in, in this global conflict. Even though there are a couple characters that are clearly more egomaniacal than others, like like I'm like I mean Queen Pro- Queen Protea is pretty indefensible, but. Uh, in in the standard history, you um, you uh, go off to assassinate Erica, ultimately decide not to, and help the resistance. Queen Protea burns down her own kingdom to try and smoke right. out the resistance, and then blames it on the resistance, which is you know a good guy move, obviously. And then you escape uh, you escape the kingdom, um, go and and uh, and intend to uh, meet up with another kingdom, Cygnus, and uh, and like deliver Erica to the king of Cygnus to enlist their help in this in this conflict and uh, and it's when you're on the way to Cygnus when you get that campfire scene uh with the uh heart to heart between Stock and Erica well on the uh the alternate timeline uh you you have a successful mission with Roche uh def- defending a mine that that is possibly a secret passage between the two uh the two countries and then you have a successful excursion to the sand fortress and then a disastrously bad mission out of the sam out of the sand fortress where you uh where uh you what's the name of the of the of the female general that's working there viola viola yeah um where uh, viola who was almost exiled to the front line because hugo felt she was getting too popular among the citizens of alistel (laughs) so he (laughs) he sent her away to 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 hold uh power and influence in alistel which is you know another good guy move clearly but um after a uh a a mission goes very very badly in alistel stock has to travel to the other timeline to get intel that might save the battle uh, or, or and save some of the soldiers, but it, um, but most of Roche's brigade gets wiped out. I really think I've been switching between Rosh and Roche this whole time, and I'm not comfortable <laughs> about it. That's fine. That's so sad. That timeline where you have to go and get the information because it doesn't like it didn't feel good because you know if you don't have the information, Rosh dies and Kiel dies. Who Kiel is adorable as well. I love Kiel to bits. Yeah. Like the sword dancer who teaches you how to dance with swords and get past in the other timeline. But yeah, like and then you bring the information back from the other timeline. Stop the ambush. But they still all die, and Keel as well. Like, is the one who like I think Keel, Rosh, and Stock are trying to escape together, while Marcos and Rainey, Marco and Rainey are like fighting back um, some of the enemies. And Keel is the one who tells Stock, like, no, you have to live. I have to go. You have to be the one to save Rosh. And Rosh is like, no, just leave me. And then Stock carries Rosh back as far as he can, but Keel dies in such a horrible way and I felt so bad he never had a chance (sighs) I I felt like they were teasing you Uh, the players the player thinks oh if I get this intel I can prevent this massacre and we'll all survive when really the 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 new outcome is uh, everyone still dies except you do manage to save Rosh (laughs) yeah there's a line I think it's in that bit it might be earlier that Stock says to Rosh and he says because Rosh is like, leave me behind, let me die. And, and Stock goes, no, you no longer just live for yourself or something along those lines. And it really got me because like, obviously all of Rosh's men have like sacrificed their lives for him. And it's the second time it's happened to Rosh mm-hmm. as well. Like this happened before the game. And Rosh is, this is what causes Rosh to be in his like depression where his arm is no longer working. 
and he has to have life-saving opera and operation as well. It's it's really it's a really tense sequence that whole section. And also, I mean, I mean, yeah. Rosh is wearing this heavy armor with that, and is part mechanical. How did Stock manage to carry him across <laughs> one and a half battlefields? Stock, he works out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the white car, he did get that ability to push those big blocks around, and everyone's like, "How can you push that around?" Oh, that's right. Uh, true. Um, yeah, I, I this uh, yeah, just imagining being in Rosh's position and losing everyone, witnessing like your direct subordinate Keel sacrifice himself for you. You being you're like your kind of um, disabilities being exacerbated further, and just. I I really believed what they did with him for that next while where he's just completely done with everything. And, you know, it's really not, I actually got kind of stuck on this part for a little bit, trying to figure out how to, how to get his spirits back up and, and get him get the plot moving forward. But it really impacted me a lot seeing that whole sequence was really something. Yeah. The entire first half of the game, like, this is the sequence that sticks out to me. You know, like Solosi was talking about, first you get this weird gameplay thing where this is the first time where you can't find the perfect ending. Like, you go in thinking you're going to save everyone, and then you're crushed as the player. And then right after, you have to watch, you know, Keel, Keel like, die trying to save everyone or trying to distract them for that extra moment and then watching, you know, Rosh just completely crushed after losing his men. And, oh, um, what's the name of the song? I, I had it. Oh, this is the part, you know, to go back to Yoko Shimomura. I think all of the songs in this soundtrack are kind of like sleeper hits. Like you'll hear them a few times and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then it will hit at the perfect moment and it just crushes me. Like, um, one of her songs plays when Rosh is explaining, you know, like, why do I deserve to live when they had to die? And then, like, her song is playing, and that, that got me. That that crushed me. Yes, yeah, Where the Wind and the Feathers Return. I know yes, exactly yes, what Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's so it. sad. Yeah. There's a, a lot of unusual survivor's guilt and, like, responding to trauma in this game. Because we, we know that uh, that Stock experienced some vague uh, vague loss in the past that is affecting him today. And uh, Rainey and Marco were members of a mercenary troop that uh, that that died under disastrous circumstances and, and they were the only survivors. And I think... That's the mine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah she it, has it, a reaction, was... doesn't she, when it caves in. Mm -hmm. and, and I think Rosh is... He, he's uh, when all this horrible stuff happens at the Sand Fortress. He's reliving the worst part of his, the the worst memory of his whole life because he was the only survivor or one of a few survivors from the battle that had him uh, that that gate that left him disabled. And then Alice and then, and then Alistair Technology it gives him this armor and a and a mechanical gauntlet that lets him that lets him fight again and live again. So he feels this great debt to Alistair for giving him a second chance and then it's ripped away from him again when he is uh, in in the events of radiant historia where uh where he's the him and stock are the only survivors of the fight but this time his arm is destroyed and he doesn't even have that anymore so it's it, it's it's just a, a a triple gut punch to poor rosh uh yeah and it, where and you have to you know do all kinds of time travel shenanigans including fighting him twice to get him back in the spirit again I have a lot of respect for, you know, like you were alluding to, how they address trauma in this game. You know, in so many JRPGs, these horrible things happen to the characters, and they're just like, hope, friendship, let's shrug it off. Mm -hmm. So, like, whenever games actually address it in a meaningful way, 
I like I have so much respect for that. And can can we talk about Rainy a little bit? Mm, let's do it. Oh my god. So she's like the only character when they re- when you know in the, I think it's the standard history when you're you've decided to help the princess and she's and Rainy is the only one holding back, right? Mm-hmm. She holds yeah. back for all of 2 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's all of 2 minutes, but like I get it. She has like such the I think that's such a moment for her character where you know she understands that Heiss is kind of a monster in his own way, but she owes her life and Marco's life to him and giving them a second chance. And like her her pausing and having apprehension for that 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 also that was another moment that hit me almost as much as you know Rosh's survivor guilt. And this game dealing with all these things as smartly as it does in my opinion, probably earns the way that you get Rosh back in business, which is you you fight him to like <laughs> snap him out of it. And it's a very like hyper-masculine way to do it. But because this game is so sensitive in every other part and Rosh and Stalker both, you know, so well developed, it's a situation that you believe. It feels less stereotypical. It feels like it feels real. Yeah, I agree. It's like they they address the trauma and then they make it clear that you know, he's lost his fighting spirit because he's lost so much. So, you know, you're not fighting him just to like slap him and tell him to be a man or whatever. You're like trying to restore his fighting spirit cuz you care about him. And so like I agree it works. Listen, I've played 5 Yakuza games in the past oh, 8 7 or 8 months. So I understand I understand I have learned a thing or two about men resolving their emotions through their fists. Um, cause that, okay. that's, that's all those games are to a degree. But, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like that the character turn from Roche, Rosh is earned and in part it's because you had, like, he has to confront his loyalty to Alistair in one timeline, then you sort of restore and, and you fight him once and, uh, then you, and then you, his fighting spirit is, re- is restored in that second fight in the other timeline. And then when you go back to the standard timeline, instead of fighting him, uh, to the, de- to the near death again, he... Again, the the quantum existence of these two timelines affecting each other, uh, it, like that that's where we get the conversation where Stock could never dream of fighting him because because instead of confront instead of confronting him to kill Stock, he confronts Stock to tell him that he's going to uh, that he's going to um, to switch sides. So it's it's Raj goes through some stuff in this game, but it's uh, I, I think he's an unusually compelling character. I only say unusually because I think it's so unusual that when he finally rejoins you permanently, he's like eight to ten levels less than everyone else. That's that. That's right, annoying. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, man, anyone, I've, like... I've known Gafka for five minutes and he's like eight levels ahead of Rosh. That's not fair. Exactly. Yeah. Honestly, that's a problem with like all the characters. Like the only characters I really considered using were Stock, Rainy, Marco, and Ott, because they're the only ones that are consistently with you. Yeah, it, everyone it, else is like mm-hmm. in and out, and I found it too frustrating. Yeah, Erica but, joins you very late, and then she leaves your party soon after. So she's she's probably uh, if you're playing roughly evenly between using all the characters, she probably has the lowest level other than Roche. Yeah. Also, isn't it really curious that it doesn't matter at what point in any timeline you're at, every character is the same level that they were in yeah. whatever other timeline and has all the same equipment and everything, oh, all the same all items. Time. I do too. I keep looking. Like, I'm like, like I see I'll... you there. That weapon I bought 
<laughs> two months later, like I'm no, and he's like, suddenly it, it, I have a very different spear. No, 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 no. It's a it's a quantum state. When you affect something in one timeline, then the events in the other timeline correct themselves to arrive at the same conclusion. It's the uh, the, the, the the cat is both alive and dead until you open the box. It's just fun for me to like wake up one morning and like imagine like just imagine myself waking up a morning and saying like oh this six pack where'd this come from hey <laughs> must have been the other timeline yeah <laughs> the other timeline time like switching between timelines is like using Facebook on your I'm like using Photoshop on your social media just 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 changing everything so that it was it was like that all along. The perfect timeline. That's how you create the perfect timeline. Yeah, yeah. You you have to tinker everything as much as you can until it arrives at the best possible outcome. But uh, 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 Alana, Pete, and and uh, Caleb, we have been jumping around this timeline, uh, explaining, like, discussing this game. And I think the best possible outcome is to save the rest of the discussion for another episode after we've all finished and have a great many more thoughts. Um, and I and I remember some of the big plot events of the end game but i don't think uh, all of them like, 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 like pete and i said i'm surprised at what i'm remembering and surprised at what at, at uh at what i'm not remembering oh yeah i'm really excited i can't i almost can't predict where things are gonna go like obviously we're gonna go to the bottom half of the continent now which is gonna mm-hmm. be really fun but like part of me does not trust hugo and i don't know whether that's misplaced or not just wait, wait, I don't wait, trust... you, do, do you mean raul because hugo is raul the... sorry yeah, yeah, yeah hugo yeah, i definitely don't yeah, trust yeah. hugo is the bald one that's very untrustworthy and, and raul is the technician I, yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah i'm not sure there's like there's a few characters i'm not sure of like raul is one of them i mean obviously the two generals who in one timeline one of them's like missing like you can pick up a side quest off of a hooded figure and then in the other timeline you basically take um ds by the throat and get the sword off of him and it's called the assassination of ds that side quest and yeah there's like a few things going on that i'm really not sure about like where are they going to go with rosh in the second half of alternate history obviously erica's going to become very important so at what point surely Surely everybody has to find out about the White Chronicle at some point. How are they going to find out about that? And how is that going to resolve itself? And is the entire continent going to turn into a desert? Who knows? I know, but the story is so spicy. Oh, yeah. So, so Caleb, you're, uh, you've are you either finished the game or almost finished it, right? You're further ahead than I am. Yeah, I I, I got way too into it. And I, I finished it. And I will say nothing about it, of course. <laughs> oh, <laughs> extremely extremely wow. fair. What, I, I might have mentioned this before, or maybe it was on another podcast. But um, when I played this, let's say, nine, ten years ago, I did not get the good ending. I, I had some, like, I got to some incomplete, slightly dissatisfying uh, resolution to the story. Because I think that it's, um, I'd have to check a guide to make sure. I think that there's neighborhood of nine to 12 specific side quests that you have to do to get the good ending. You don't need to do every single side quest in the game, but you have to complete a number of the optional side quests to get the best ending. So I'm going to, uh, in the second, before we record the second half of this podcast, or sorry, before we record the next episode of this podcast, I am going to visit online guides a little bit and make sure I get the, uh, the, the outcome that's, that everyone here wants. Yeah, I have that saved in my phone if anyone wants it. I can I can figure <laughs> it out. I mean, if we're talking about what's going on in the next episode, and I 
and I've made the Schrodinger's cat reference that I've been wait waiting to make for an hour and ten minutes, then I think we are near the, uh, the end of Radiant Historia Part 1. So uh, next week, listeners, you probably figured this out already. We're doing another Radiant Historia episode. I have a lot of game ahead of me still. I think I'm only around 13 or 14 hours in which I think is around halfway, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but that's coming at the end of February. And coming in March, we're, we have um, two episodes uh, planned, one on Crimson Shroud, the Matsuno 3DS, uh, 3DS eyewear game, I think. It's, uh, it, it was a download-only game for the 3DS released a couple years ago. That's a really unique and cool thing that a couple uh, members of RPG Fan were keen to play, so I was keen to record a podcast on it. Um, and also, we're doing our second episode in our multi-part series on Final Fantasy XIV, this time about Heaven's Word, uh, the, those coming in the first half of March. And in the second half of March, we're doing two episodes on Muramasa, the Demon Blade, which we'll see if that can be the second Vanillaware game I'm interested in enough to actually finish uh, <laughs> but if you have uh questions for us or comments to us uh about rating historia muramasa crimson shroud or anything at all you can email us at retro at rpgfan.com or also comment on rpg fans message boards visit the facebook page visit the instagram page visit the twitter page our discord server our youtube channel our twitch channel there's something streaming every day on twitch and uh, a lot of our re uh, written reviews get converted to video form for that youtube channel please engage with rpg fan in whatever Ever manner you please, but I would love it if one of those me means was by listening to our podcasts. And those podcasts don't only mean Retro Encounter. We have three other fine podcasts. Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about RPG music, and Phoenix Edge, which is another weekly podcast mostly focused on current events. You can review all four of RPG Fans' podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever listening venue you use. Give us all the feedback you are willing to provide, please. And if you want to provide more direct feedback, you can uh, reach out to us on our individual social media channels. Let's share them with you, starting with you, Caleb. Uh, so I have a Twitter now. You can find you me do? at... Uh, yeah, I got one. Uh, this is new uh, to me. You can find me at Fuffa30. It's F-U-F-F-A 30, if you want to. Fufa30. <laughs> I will follow you one minute after we're done recording. Listeners, if you want to, if you want to play Internet Detective and found out, find out when we recorded, that's, that's the way to do it. Um, but uh, Pete, how can listeners find you? So on Twitter, I'm Pete Barbero one and uh, if, if you want to see uh, someone with an unhealthy relationship to Genshin Impact and historical combat flight simulators, you can go to twitch.tv slash rghalfpenny. Yeah, man, I... I... I, I'm always confused whether I should, if I'm looking for your Twitter page or something, Pete, it's like, is, is this one Barbaro, Regulation, or Halfpenny? I'm not sure which. <laughs> he uses all three. I, I'm all over the place with that, and that's my bad, and I, um, I'm, I'm just going to deal with it uh, as best across, I can. Across the bay, yeah. Here, uh, but Alana Hogan <laughs> listeners find you. Uh, so it's pretty easy. I'm mostly on Twitter as at Alana Haig, so come follow me there if you want to see what I tweet about. Uh, I'm on Twitter way too much, basically. Uh, I'm also on the RPG Fan Discord, so if you're a part of there, just at Alana, and I will probably come running with Flammy. Uh, or if you want to email me, you can. I am AlanaH at RPGFan.com. 
And listeners, if you want to reach me, I also am named different things in confusing places on the internet. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. I am also Monsoon Mike on RPG Fans Discord, and Solosi at RPGFan.com is my site email address. Uh, and I'm, I think my mental bandwidth is not broad enough for me to support any more social media. I'm, I'm basically done. I don't, I don't even have an Instagram page. Um, but uh, listeners, we don't care what social media you have or don't have. We just are very, very appreciative that you are listening to our podcast. Um, and even if you jump around the timeline by listening to episodes out of order, that's fine. Um, I, I, I do the same, especially in games like Radiant Historia. Thank you. Good night and good luck.